Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and this is NPR News. If you know a teenager, today's conversation will resonate with you. We're going to talk about what many experts are calling the second pandemic. Children, teenagers, and young adults are experiencing soaring rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide ideation after three years of isolation and disruption thanks to COVID-19. And it's being felt everywhere, at home, in communities, on college campuses. So over the next few months, we will talk about many of these facets on my show. But today, for a special in-focus discussion, I want to hone in on K-12 schools because they are on the front lines of the mental health epidemic. Kids may be back in the classroom, but it is not back to normal. Joining me today are three mental health professionals who work directly with student mental wellness, and I want to introduce them to you. We have, first, Dr. Benita Amadi. She is a licensed professional clinical counselor with a doctorate in counseling psychology. She currently works as the clinical manager of school-based mental health for the Wilder Foundation. Welcome, Benita. Good to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. We also have Cedric Weatherspoon. Cedric has more than 20 years of experience working in mental health. He currently is the president and clinical director of Empower Therapeutic Support Services in North Minneapolis, where he specializes in working with young people. So glad to have you here, Cedric. Thank you. Glad to be here. And finally, we have Keila Coolers with us. Keila was Minnesota's Counselor of the Year in 2022. She also has years of experience working with kids and mental wellness, mostly in a school-based setting. Currently, she works at as a counselor at St. Paul's Music Academy. Welcome, Keila. Thanks for having me. Hi. This is a topic very near and dear to my heart. And I know many people uh, who just care about our young folks and want to mm-hmm. offer them encouragement and, and help them to be in a better uh, situation. So during our December and Focus conversation, um, it was about COVID learning loss. And we heard again and again, the only way to truly, quote, catch kids up is to address the mental health of students and even teachers before we can even transition into the gap in academics. So educators told us that they are seeing unprecedented levels of disconnection, anxiety, and even aggression in their students. And so I kind of want to start there um, in terms of of, of what we know we are seeing in in young people. Um, And Keila, do you agree with that, that that yeah. what we're seeing in the schools? Yeah, I would definitely agree. So in my setting, I'm actually in the elementary school, and I would say in the past three years, um, I've done more assessments for self-harm statements or self-har- acts of self-harm. Um, anxiety is really, really elevated, um, and some of those higher-risk behaviors have been increasing since we've returned to the classroom. When you say anxiety, uh, mm-hmm. can you give me a description? I think in my own life what anxiety looks yeah. like. But what does it look like in an elementary school student yeah. or someone in middle school? Yeah. Well, I think for the younger the younger ages especially, but I think it could apply to you know teenagers and adults as well, is that we feel this discomfort in our body and that might be uh, – you know, an upset stomach, a fast heartbeat, um, racing thoughts, whatever. And it, we, we sometimes express it out through our behavior. And so what that can look like in the classroom is kids who are, you know, leaving the classroom. They look like they're chattering a lot. They look unfocused. Um, sometimes there's tears. Sometimes there's frequent trips to the nurse or to the bathroom, some type of work avoidance um, that sometimes could get missed and look like, you know, defiance, or it can look like not trying to, 
not following the rules or not following expectations when actually it's discomfort inside that I may or may not know how to label or I may or may not understand. I just know I feel this discomfort. I don't like it. And um, Mm -hmm. so the behavior ends up being that communication in that scenario. And Benita, you oversee an entire team of school-based therapists. Um, what are they reporting? What are they seeing with the, with the young people that they're working with? Yeah, I would agree. Um, anxiety, for sure. It, and it could look like ADHD, right? It can be mm-hmm. kind of confused with that, as she's mentioning, people moving around and, and being nervous. Um, depression, especially right now. And depression, is that voiced or, or how is that described? The Sometimes it's voiced, um, definitely the behaviors, um, and withdrawal. Mm. It's a, a long time not to be with friends, um, and to be in danger all the time. So as was mentioned, your body is trying to protect itself. It thinks it's in danger. Parents are, well, for our kids, a lot of the parents are working mm-hmm. um, during this pandemic. So they were scared for their parents. We have dual pandemic, so the whole world was scary. So everything in your body is sort of on fire, on edge. Mm-hmm. And so do you agree with the thought that before we can start talking about academics and test scores and catching up, we have to prioritize mental health? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Cedric, uh, your thoughts on, on, on what you're seeing and, and hearing in conversation with young people and the idea that mental health is the priority. Well, first I want to just acknowledge, like, uh, we're working with a unique uh, group of young people during this time. Um, the the kids are more, I've been, like I've said, I've been doing mental health for a long time, but in this generation, they really understand, like, what therapy is about. Um, it's, you know, you have YouTube and all these social media platforms that um, educate young people about mental health therapy and so what I've seen over time is the normalization of mental mental wellness. So I think that offers a great foundation for the work that we do mm-hmm. um, because we don't have to do as much psychoeducation with the, with the youth. Uh, I primarily work with African-American uh, clients and African-American families. So, yes, the pandemic was very impactful. Um, but also we we're dealing with a high um, a lot of disparities in mental health and also physical health. Uh, those are barriers um, of people accessing surf- services. So you know you pile on the pandemic, uh, the civil unrest, and you also um, add add in some academic stuff. Then that increase you know with the clients I serve, I see increasing. Uh, anxiety, uh, conflict with peers, um, because, you know, depression and anxiety looks different Mm -hmm. across, you know, depending on who the person is. So So it could be aggression or it could be withdrawal. Yeah, it could be withdrawal also. Mm -hmm. But with the demographic I I see, uh, I I am seeing the suicidal ideation, but also seeing like just being irritated and not misunderstood. you know, and also being, you know, like labeled, like being labeled like, oh, you're a, you're a problem kid, you know, and that pe- perpetuates that those mental health symptoms. So mm-hmm. that's what I see a lot of and trying to unravel those barriers and also cre- increase self-esteem while addressing the issues that we <laughs> with mm-hmm. COVID and and with civil unrest in their com- in certain communities, I think is it, very challenging. Kayla, you want to add something? 
Yeah, well, and kind of going back to your question about like how does this impact learning, and we think about just how our brains are just primarily primarily wired, and that is if I feel like I'm under threat, you know, my body, my nervous system has response to that. So, you know, there's parts of my brain that are going to become more activated that will increase my heart rate, that will like you know widen my pupils, that will like get my muscles primed for action, right, or whatnot. So, if we think about that part of the brain is actually um, it doesn't have the ability to process higher order thinking or like think through consequences and in fact can turn off the part of the brain that does, you know, impact speech and problem solving and those things like that. And so if I'm under a sense of threat or anxiety, if I have that higher heart rate, I literally can't access the part of my brain that I need to do algebra problems or to work through that social media problem with a friend. And then, you know, anxiety, depression, other impacts um, or other experiences that I might be having or, or diagnosis that I have then also also interplay with that. So we think about when a kid is sitting in a classroom and the teacher is teaching a reading lesson and the student is unfocused or looking out the window or maybe acting out in a certain way, you know, it we sometimes there's an act to like, um, discipline or to react to the behavior that we see in front of instead of pausing and thinking what's behind that and what's going on with that and how can I work to, you know, reduce that sense of threat so that way, you know, a student can access those those higher orders of, of thinking and they can think through problem solving and they can have conversations and they can think through consequences and think ahead. Mm-hmm. And so that ends up being another way that it interplays in the classroom. And it's not a single student, it's the majority of the students. Yeah. Well, and if we even think about it from the adult perspective too, you know, you have an argument with a sibling, you're stressed out about finances or there's other changes in your life, right? Those things come to the, I mean, those are in the forefront of your mind and you can't maybe work through your work day and think through and have, you know, conversations or plan things for your own work environment because you're thinking about this thing that's right in front of you that Mm -hmm. is causing you that distress. And the same thing happened for kids. It's just oftentimes developmentally, they don't have the language to say, at least for the younger students that I work with, you know, they don't have the language to say, oh, I recognize this as anxiety. I know when I feel anxiety, this is what happens to my body's response. And this, they need to be taught that and they need to have that reinforced and modeled for them. And then when they have that consistency and they understand those things and are able to label those things, then they're able to move and push into the academics. And I think that that probably hints at what you heard in the last month with those educators saying, until we can get more forward progress with academics, we have to address this first, because I think that that's what right. they're seeing. Right. Uh, and I don't want to get bogged down in numbers, but we do want to share a, a few important statistics for folks who are listening at home, because they really do tell a story. Um, a survey that the Minnesota Department of Health uh, conducted last year found that record numbers of students are struggling with anxiety, depression, or other mental health issues. And MDH, they've conducted uh, the survey every three years since the late 1980s, and it's it's very comprehensive. More than 135,000 students participated. It also found that a larger percentage of Minnesota students are experiencing suicidal thoughts. And so when you hear that, what goes through your mind um, that a, a greater percentage of students are, are so hopeless that they, they are are having serious thoughts and sharing that they're having serious thoughts of just not wanting to be here anymore, Benita? Um, It makes sense to me, and as a conversation earlier, that you just want to get away from it. You want to get away from the pain. It might be suicidal thoughts. It could also be increased substance use. Um, Mm -hmm. Kids are really just trying to 
numb. Um, we've seen an increase in cutting, for example. So may, they may not be thinking, I want to kill myself, but I do want to stop feeling this pain. And many adults would, would mirror that. Uh, Cedric, the, the idea that many more students are reporting that, yeah, that's suicidal thoughts in the last year. Yeah, I mean, you know, I always go back to, I listen to, um, I read a lot of Montessori stuff. And what Maria Montessori talked about is giving students the language. Uh, yes, these are thoughts. It's, it's different types of thoughts. that You can have fleeting thoughts. You can have invasive thoughts. And so as mental health professionals, we have to kind of, you know, kind of weave through that and say, are these fleeting thoughts? Or are these, are you really, you know, you want to move forward with, with harming yourself? I would say in the black community, suicidal, um, suicidal attempts or um, ideation has increased um, in, in a lot of the communities, in a lot of communities that we were thinking like suicidal uh, behavior is low. Um, I do, it is scary for parents and I, I want to reach out to, you know, a lot of parents I reach out when they, when their kids thinking differently and they're feeling hopeless and they're feeling like their world is falling apart. Uh, it's very difficult for parents and students um, because as a parent, you know, you hear that, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about attempting suicide then parents are like, wow, you know, what do we do wrong? What can we do? How can we support uh, our student, our, our child? Uh, as a mental health professional, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, so automatically I'm thinking, like, how can we get parents in to kind of have conversation and support the students? Um, and when you're having students like that, it's not necessarily, it is about therapy, but it's about relationships with others, uh, relationship with your community, relationship with teachers, relationships with friends. Uh, in those cases, you know, a, a younger person needs the support from everybody and not just just focusing mainly on the there you go to therapy, everything's going to be fine. Um, you have to look at the whole system as a whole um, as a support. It's like the village. Take, mm-hmm. It takes a village to raise a child approach. And in my conversations with young adults and teenagers, children in my life and, and, and children who I've seen interviewed recently um, in the news, they all talk about um, just not having enough people to listen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Keila, what would you say to that? The value of just having someone to just sit with, sit, sit with me and listen to me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's, that's really important. And I think that just like you mentioned, Cedric, sometimes when adults hear those words, our first naturally our first response are just complete alarm and what can we do to help what can we do to step in and i would i would i would say that i would suggest to just pause and listen and start with thanks for sharing like this is really brave of you to talk about this and um you know i always give kids choices when they come talk to me i can you know, you can come in here and I can just listen and I can be quiet and you can just have a place to just let it all out because sometimes that is what feels the best. That's what you need. Maybe you might need to work through an issue or, um, you know, come up with some ideas of how we can handle and how we can work on this together. Who else are the important part- people in your life that we can talk to? Um, oftentimes, you know, anxiety and depression can feel really isolating. And so I'm the only one that feels this way. And I think developmentally with you too, like that whole, 
you know, just that developmental stage of, it's, you know, the world is looking at me and, and it's all about me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so just kind of looking at who else is there and who can support us. I think to kids, especially the younger grade or the, you know, the younger kids that I work with, there's often a, I'm afraid to share this because I'm afraid that I'm going to upset somebody or make someone important to me disappointed. Um, you know, I had a student not that long ago come and share with me that she was having these thoughts that she was engaging in self-harm. And so we talked about calling home and talking with family. And she got really upset and said, but I'm the good kid. And I said, yeah, you're a great kid. And you're, you're having some really big feelings and you've got lots of people in your life who support you and let's bring those people together so we can work on a plan so we can work on you not feeling this way anymore. Right. And so removing those barriers and opening those doors so that kids can see and can talk to. I think that that survey, because it's anonymous, their chances are the kids that I'm seeing walk through my door is maybe not a third to a half of the kids that are feeling this way. Right. And so. That's what I think really another important role with school counseling is, um, is that, you know, about a third of my time is spent teaching in the classroom. So each week I'm in front of teaching students and we're talking about expanding emotions vocabulary, labeling our feelings. We're talking about, you know, handling put downs, you know, responding to bullying. We're working on all the strategies and through all of that, you know, I'm letting them know I'm here. This is what I do. Let me know if you need anything. And so that relationship is built and, and, and when that relationship is built, then that opens doors for kids to recognize that there's people who they might not realize that they can come talk to for a place to start. Dr. Armady, talk to me about the power, the value of listening, how to be a good listener, and, and what that could do for a child or teenager in distress. Well, we work a little differently than this mentioned for the school counselor. We have to have parents say it's okay for their child to, to see us for therapy. Mm. And a parent might not be okay with it. So this has been a barrier? That- Sometimes it is a barrier. Um, for some of our clients, we, have, we work in, a, in different cultures. So some, um, there's no word for mental health in their language. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. For some, you know, we've had a history of, as black folks to say, well, pray on it or it's not that bad or work through it, all of those things. So the idea that you need therapy, um, even though kids are more open to it, parents might not be. Um, and we talk about we're somebody that can... Just listen um, without judgment. You know, as a parent, when you're worried, there's judgment sometimes, right? right? Like, you can't, we're doing everything we can. And it shows on your face, it shows in your body language, mm-hmm. right? And-, and sometimes it is, this is a time, too, that kids can be very dramatic, as we mentioned with them um, being young. So parents might be like, well, that's not really a thing. Um, and so to have somebody really hear you, really... Um, believe that this is something for you. This is big. Um, and expand your, your language around it. You're feeling overwhelmed. That might not be the same as suicidal, you know, mm-hmm. being able to help them with that. Uh, I want to talk about girls. There's been a lot of uh, reporting recently, some new information about what girls are, are saying. Um, that, that Minnesota survey um, echoed a report that the CDC, the Centers for... Um, um, <laughs> the <laughs> I'm, I'm drawing a blank. The CDC uh, issued last week that uh, girls in particular are suffering. Um, the, their data show that three out of every five teenage girls felt persistent sadness in 2021. And I want to say that again. Three out of every five teenage girls felt persistent sadness in 2021. 
which is double the rate of boys. So I want to talk about our girls. Um, in Minnesota, about um, half, 45% of girls reported long-term mental health problems. Are uh, Each of you, uh, are you seeing that as well? What, are you, what can you tell us about girls, Keela? I definitely see um, more girls, um, you know, seeking out or wanting to talk. Um, And oftentimes they'll start off as, you know, small stories of, you know, things that happen with peers or things like that, but it definitely ends up evolving into more of a story. And I, so I definitely see that. Mm -hmm. Um, And different than what boys are experiencing. Why do you think? I don't know that I have a lot of thoughts on why. I don't know if maybe there's different like social conditioning of it's it's okay to for girls to feel this way and boys are still feeling it, but they don't feel that it feels comfortable to express it um, or verbalize it. So that could maybe be it. So maybe the statistic for boys is just disproportionate mm-hmm. to girls for that reason. Um, I think that social media is a big interplay of this, um, you know, especially with the age of the pandemic, the the pro is our technology skills just shot through the roof. The con is that we know how to use a lot of things. And sometimes our youth know how to use it at a disproportionately high rate compared to the adults in their home. And they can navigate and find their way to, you know, exposed to things that are beyond where their developmental years might be or where their maturity level is. In comparison um, to the images that are out there on social media, I think a lot of girls tend to compare themselves. Absolutely. It seems like everyone else is happier and prettier and has more friends. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, than pay, they, do. they pay attention to that. I, I do think, though, girls in some ways are allowed to talk about it where boys aren't. So we see behaviors mm-hmm. um, and isolating and, again, substance use. I would say that that's an issue because we're trying to talk boys into coming in and talking about what's going on and that that's okay to talk about that pain. But for for girls, not so, Cedric? I would just think, like, boys are more relational and they need permission to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I see a lot of males and the first thing is, it's the vetting thing. It's like, okay, can I really be vulnerable in front of you or do I need to keep this wall up? And, And a lot of, once you build these strong relationships, strong trusting relationship and say, so boys can be able to, you know, trust that, you know, they can be vulnerable in many spaces. Because you think about some some of the young men I've seen, being vulnerable cannot is not an asset. You know, they have to have that wall up for protection in their communities, uh, some of the communities that they navigate. And so to help them kind of give them permission that it's okay to be vulnerable. And sometimes as a black male, we have to model that. Uh, as a therapist, I have to talk about you know, my, my, my vulnerabilities. And that's when the thing is like, I'm going to give you a little bit, you give me a little Mm -hmm. bit. And we kind of go back and forth. And also talking about my experience as a black male, um, not being vulnerable and how that all developed. And so it's, it's always with working, uh, with, with black, with the black communities, uh, um, most black communities, it's always that, uh, opening up dialogue around how we came to be. Uh, how did I form my male identity? And so that's a part of the narrative to be able to access the therapy, therapy and get kids to really engage in therapy and be vulnerable. And Keila, for parents who are listening, parents of girls in particular, any, any advice you would have for them or anything you would say to them that might be helpful? Mm. 
I th- always really suggest starting off with just listening. And I think oftentimes kids will disclose their their biggest stories and what's really going on in these most random of moments. And so I would caution against using too many probing questions. Um, people they don't would, like questions. They don't like questions. How are you doing? No. And Where they are you especially going? don't you like to? questions that start with why, right? Because right? mm-hmm. why implies that there's judgment or there's things like that. And so, you know, tell me more about that. Or I'm curious about, or I'm wondering if, like, you know, just listen with curiosity, you know, walks or while you're doing a puzzle or while you're engaged in some other reciprocal activity, those are when the stories come. And so just listening. And I think starting off with, wow, and thanks for telling me about this. Um, I'm, I'm really proud of you for opening up and sharing. What else would you like for me to know? Um, I I think that kids often worry that they will be received with some type of consequence or if they disclose too much. And so just, you know, really in that moment, just validating the listening and just wait for those spontaneous moments to come out is really, really important. Um, I think that um, not feeling like you have to give answers, right, and validating what they're talking about. And so, for example, if they're talking about an example that happened at lunch or at recess where a peer said or did something, you know, just work on recognizing what's and getting them to recognize what's in their control. Well, I can't control what the other person says or does. And, of course, if there's instances of bullying or things like that, then we want the school to know to address that. But if there's a peer issue, okay, let's work on what's in your control. Can you turn off or can you leave that Snapchat group where some of this stuff is being said? Or can you walk away and find another friend where you feel you know supported? And, you know, ask them what they need from you. How can mm. I help you? I like that, Cedric and uh, uh, Benita. Also, can you give me some words to to help help us uh, as parents talk to our children in a more effective way? Any any way to start the conversation, or what are the magic words to say to to get them to maybe open up and tell us a story? I would say I'm listening. You know, yeah. you're in control. You have the power over this conversation, and you know, as parents, we tend to lecture. Uh, I hear that a lot from my own kids. It's like, oh, we don't need the lecture today. We need, <laughs> we need you to just listen. Talking. So, so key words is, you know, it's always about teaching and engaging in, in relationships and developing your relationship as a parent. Um, giving permission to say, hey, talk freely. We need you to talk freely and have, you know, let's, let's have an open dialogue. And I think a lot of kids are afraid, if I tell you this, then you're going to overreact, you're going to get in, I'm going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're going to be disappointed. I'm, uh, you're going to be disappointed and I can't go to my friend's house or you're going to take my phone. Um, but I think just opening up and, you know, having um, having rules around just being open about difficult conversations, um, I think that would be the key word is is saying like, hey, this is our safe space. This is our safe space, and create, and, and including creating a safe space in your home. I think a lot of folks, you know, um, don't see a lot of value in there, and it seems like one of those magical things to do. Um, but creating a safe space in your home, this is where we talk. We've, we've seen this happen throughout when I was growing up. The safe space to talk is let's talk at the table. Let's talk during the, a meal or let's talk after mom got done with a prayer service, so, <laughs> reading her Bible. But creating that safe space 
so that everyone in the home is comfortable about talking about their feelings. So mm. that could be a key word. And Benita, any suggestions? Can you give us some words to help us start a conversation? Well, one thing I would talk about the safe, safe space is actually, um, it's going to sound silly, but van therapy. Basically, when you're driving with your kid, mm-hmm. <laughs> they talk about anything. It's like you're not there in a way. So that's a chance to just listen. I, I would say the less words that you can use, mm-hmm. the more that you can just acknowledge, nod, I hear you, well, that sounds hard. Mm-hmm. And that's about it because they really just want you to hear them. They, they don't want to be judged about it. They're already judging themselves, mm-hmm. especially girls, mm-hmm. already judging themselves. So as much as we can just listen, mm-hmm. just listen. I would definitely add on to that too, if I could, is with the, the nonverbals, it's, it's what you don't say, right? And so I think, you know, if your child or the, you know, the young person in your life is disclosing something to you that feels really big, just check in with your own self. Um, you know, it's, it's everything from that, you know, rocking that baby that's really dysregulated, kind of that co-regulation of checking with your heart rate your heartbeat, check in with your breathing. Um, because oftentimes, you know, we have mirror, Im- mirror neurons in our brain that will mimic the people around us. And so if we're calm and we're listening and our, our behavior and our affect just shows I'm listening and I'm open and I'm, I'm not judging, I'm not jumping to conclusions. Um, and I think too, simple things like parallel body language. If, you know, Cedric and I are, you know, facing the same direction and we're talking to one another and we're kind of putting the problem out in front of us, it shows, you know, your youth, we're on the same team and we're we're working on this. You know, you are not your behavior. Behavior is behavior. We can work on that. You are you, right? And separating from what they're experiencing, um, you know, have it be a state and not a trait, um, is, can be really, really beneficial. We think about the opposite. You know, if I'm facing Cedric and tell me what's going on and I'm getting close in his face, you know, just from an instinctual primal, you know, I feel like, you know, that's kind of the threat. That's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, so being really aware of our nonverbals too. And yeah, that felt you know, very aggressive just now. Right. When you took the shoulders, it did. Yeah. It changed. Some people describe it as aggressive. <laughs> no, but I think just kind of being aware of a lot of those nonverbals and what we do. And of course, like inside our brain, our alarms might be going off, but on the outside, we kind of got that cool calm I'm listening and I'm here with you we're on the same team and that's mm-hmm. going to lay the groundwork the other piece is just being very consistent with that right because if your youth discloses one thing or shares one story and you respond with that calm affect and that that those listening ears they're gonna take note of it in their head okay that's how that one went and then the next time they'll try it again and if you respond the same way and if you create those predictable patterns then what you've done is you've created that rapport and that trust and you've opened doors for you know when they're eight and then when they're 13 and when, you know, as the, mm-hmm. the complexity of the things they're facing start to evolve as they grow older. For uh, those of you just joining us, I'm Angela Davis here at NPR News, and you're listening to a special in-focus discussion about student me- mental health. It's a follow-up conversation um, after our December in-focus about COVID learning loss, where we heard constantly that we can't help students catch up academically until we address the enormous mental health burdens they are dealing with post-pandemic. I want to introduce our panelists again. We're talking with Dr. Benita Amadi, who has more than 30 years of therapy and culturally specific counseling experience working with children and families. She's currently the clinical supervisor of school-based counselors with the Wilder Foundation. We also have with us Cedric Weatherspoon, the co-founder and clinical director 
director of Empower Therapeutic Support Services in North Minneapolis. He also has a wealth of experience counseling families and adolescents. And Keila Coolers, a school counselor and therapist at St. Paul's Music Academy. Keila was also Minnesota Counselor of the Year last year. Congrats on that, Keila. So earlier this month, um, we often uh, do, uh, as we often do before these In Focus uh, conversations, NPR convened a story circle. And that is a way uh, for us to hear from community members affected by the topic that we are pursuing. Um, so as you might imagine, the story circle around this uh, crisis in student mental health was very emotional. And so we're going to take some time to hear from some students right now. I want to play a few clips for you from students who shared their stories. So let's start with a current college student named Elizabeth Yang, who was a junior in high school when the pandemic hit. She also worked regularly at her parents' restaurant. Listen. Before the pandemic, I was such, I was involved in a lot of activities. I also joined like after school clubs. Um, I was in tennis. I was in debate club and I was also doing PSEO. So I was a top, I was trying to be a top student. But when the pandemic hit, I feel like I went into a slump and it made it worse almost having to be a frontline worker at the same time. Uh, and dealing with customers on a daily basis. Something that bothered me the most during the pandemic was um, when, I, when I would read news online about the pandemic, I would read news hearing people call it the Chinese virus. And it really hit me in a really negative way coming as an Asian American woman. And I'm not even Chinese, I'm Hmong. So owning a Thai restaurant, an Asian restaurant, and having to have a mass mandate in a store, we would have had a lot of customers and we were located in a white suburban area. And we would have a lot of customers come in and complain and don't wear a mask and saying, oh, this is just a hoax. And it really hurt. It really harmed my mental health because it made me rethink about my own position and belonging in America that um, is something that many Asian American students wrestled with. Um, you know, for them, it wasn't just the lockdown. It was the lockdown plus racial tension. And Cedric, I know you heard from some of your clients um, about this, uh, George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis and the protests around racial reckoning uh, all happening at the same time. And, mm. and so did you hear students share a little bit of what Elizabeth just shared of like it was multiple things happening at one time? Well, where most of the African American students I work with, um, I think it, trauma is is a part of their experience. And when we talk about like mental health, a lot of the stories I hear is you know um, things that teachers and everyone um, don't really pay attention to. For example, like it's been an increase in gun violence. And so with an increase in the gun violence in these communities, uh, I think people forget these are kids who have went to school with some of these kids who were victims of gun violence uh, or still have relationships with parents who are victims of who are victims of gun violence and still also watching uh, still the increase in police, police um, killings of black males um, in in their community, so it's con- that's a constant umbrella of dealing with constant trauma, secondary trauma, um, and so when I talk about when people talk about the pandemic, 
that's one one more brick to that we have to kind of remove from our our um, families. And a lot of folks talk about issues related to race. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a on that has been an ongoing topic. Is why am I why am I being targeted? Uh, I'm concerned about my kids. Is it safe for my kids to walk walk the streets in some of these communities? And some of these kids are not even involved in that. And, and a lot of their friends who have become victims, they weren't even necessarily involved in involved in those those uh, incidents. But it's just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so, you know. Although, like the the pandemic is very important, but with the demographic I serve, is so many is so many layers to mm-hmm. uh, what impacts their mental health. And Benita, what would you say about the role that that racial tensions and conversations about um, racial tensions and, and and public safety? What role has that played in um, the mental health crisis we're seeing in young people? Sure. Well, there's no safe place. Um, home was safe or school might have been safe or maybe hanging out with your friends might have been safe. But there was nothing. You know, going at home, you were still very anxious. You wanted to see your friends, talk to your friends. You know, you didn't feel comfortable at home. You couldn't go to school. And then going out in the community, both with George Floyd and with Asian hate, nothing was safe. I'm not saying that these things weren't happening before, but it's just so prevalent in your face. Um, Kids and adults, um, just had no place to feel safe, like you were going to be okay. Uh, just in my own body, going out and seeing um, tanks, you know, my heart would start beating. It just, it, it feels dangerous. Mm. And of course, for our kids, there's no words for that yet for some of them. They don't know why it's going on. Why do these people hate me? I haven't done anything. And they're still processing it now. Still processing yes. it now. Right. They still are. And, and again, you, where are you going to do that? As the young woman mentioned, your parents might be going to work, and it's not safe for them to be at work at that time. It might not be safe because of the pandemic, but then because of the racism that's just out there, um, mm-hmm. just being worried all the time. Worried all the time. Um, Keila, anything you would add uh, about public safety and racial tensions, all of that playing a role in what um, children and teenagers are thinking about? Yeah. I think from my role and just listening to some of Elizabeth's words, you know, I'm with the elementary age kids and a lot of them look to their adults and they hear, you know, sentiments of adults that are being things that they, viewpoints they have, values they have, beliefs that they have, um, and they hear their words. And oftentimes kids might not understand the complexity. Some some do, so I don't want to, you know, paint a broad brush on it, but understanding the complexities of our words and the, the consequences of our words. And so you know, in, in schools and what I'm doing with a lot of the students that I'm working with in classroom lessons is we're talking about, you know, our culture and our beliefs and our values and how those differ from others and how we accept others for who they are. And if we're curious about others, how we might approach that. Just last week, we had a lesson on social filter and how, what are some things that we need to stop, pause and think before we speak. And if we are curious about someone else's background or culture or language or dress or expression or walk in life, you, you name it. Um, you know, how do we approach that with curiosity? And we learn before we, you know, we learn more about the people to learn what we might have in common. We accept that we're, that we're different from one, one another. And we recognize that our words and our actions have the power to change how people feel. And that's a big deal. I and mean, we need to, we need to build that skill to, to think through before we speak. But I think what's confusing to kids is we teach this to kids, 
but they don't see the adults doing it. Mm. Right? So we have these lessons here, you know, this is what needs to happen out in the world. And yet it's, it's an adult that's yelling at another adult about being Asian or being black. So it's confusing. It's really confusing. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. We're going to hear some, from some more students right now. Um, LGBTQ students also dealt with an amplified mental health load. Uh, let's hear another personal story from our story circles. And this time we will hear from Abby Neeson, who was a senior in high school when the lockdown happened. Prior to COVID, I, I mean, I was super involved in a lot of things, still am, but definitely like, like struggled with anxiety. I'm just like a very anxious person. But when COVID hits, again, being in a lot of activities, there's like, that was the stuff I looked forward to kind of thing, like sports, arts, clubs, all of that. And so it started like depression started settling in a lot more. And I'm very much a people person. Um, so not being able to like interact, which obviously is like a pretty common experience for a lot of people. I know that not being able to see anybody and just like feeling very isolated, went up to college in Fargo, North Dakota, where we were, you know, stuck to our dorm rooms then because of COVID because classes, you couldn't go in person. So like COVID impacted like relationships too then because I couldn't make any friends for my first like year and a half of school because we were all stuck online. And again, I'm a people person. So it's hard moving, you know, to a different state, not really knowing anybody. And then along the same time, I personally am someone who identifies with the LGBTQ plus community and like a little before like COVID hit is when I like started really like a lot of self-exploration and like finding my own identity, but like privately And so obviously everyone was like, I knew a lot of people were struggling with mental health. So I wasn't going to try and talk to people about, you know, like my LGBTQ plus identity when I wasn't even sure of myself. So alongside like the isolation of COVID and then trying to figure out like myself as a person, as well as, yeah, obviously navigating college, which you guys understand the struggle of that. And what do you hear um, in the, in that story? What stands out to you and what, what she shared. There's Anita? a theme of, you know, we're pack people. I mean, we're pack animals. Humans are. <laughs> we want to be with other people. Yes. And you hear all these kids talk about, I'm isolated. I'm by myself. I can't be with others. Um, and Abby and Elizabeth both talked about before, mm-hmm. I was active. I Social. was doing things, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the thing that helped me feel good about myself. And then you just couldn't. And we didn't really have a replacement. I mean, virtual sort of replacements, but no replacement to really be with somebody, to feel somebody's heartbeat by just sitting next to them. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't have that chance. None of us did, really, but they didn't have that chance. And that's, that's a really big deal for, for teens especially. But now that um, you know, students are back in class and the interactions are back, um, it's still difficult because you, know, you look to the left, you look to the right, everybody's struggling. Yeah. So that's made it, that's created sort of a new hardship, right? In interactions? Well, they lost three years of socialization and, and development is off, yes. right? So they're yes. three years younger than w- what we see in front of them, right? right? So if you the bodies talk, got bigger, but the, the but mind, nothing else did, right? Yeah. So if you talk to somebody who works um, in childcare um, mm-hmm. or preschool, you're, maybe you're looking at a four year old, but you're not. You're seeing tantrums like they were too, you know? So. Um, the same with the teenagers and, and our little guys. They're just, they're so young mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Cedric, anything you want to say about isolation and how hard that was and, and what we're seeing now as a result of it? Yeah, you can definitely see developmentally um, things are a little bit 
slower to click on. I, I, I would say it's there, but you know they need a little bit more co- coaching to click on. What I do want to say is, you know, although um, being in, coming out of pandemic is is not the ideal thing, I'm saying it lightly. Uh, but I, what I get excited about is it's an opportunity, and I think a lot of times when we get bogged down by um, traumatic situations, we forget to look for opportunities. And so with, with some of the people that I work with, you know, we talk about where the opportunity is. The opportunity is to create a new wellness approach with why a new wellness approach in our culture. Really pay attention to wellness because wellness is not necessarily going and seeing a therapist, but it's also with the maintenance piece and being able to get kids, educate kids about how do you, what is well, what does wellness look like for you? How do you build community? Um, you can't do that within an hour session, but you know, that's, I think that's one of the biggest pieces. Like, um, yes, mm-hmm. this, this is a difficult time, but I, I also see the opportunity, mm-hmm. what, what lays before us. Um, one aspect of mental wellness I, I haven't seen discussed much is how the pandemic impacted students who were already struggling with substance abuse. And so I have another student that um, we're going to listen to um, in our story circle who shared this about her story. Let's listen. Um, before I'd struggled with a lot of mental health issues, I'd been in and out of a couple different types of therapy and treatment. Um, And then around high school, I had realized that I had also a substance abuse problem. So um, my junior year, I was moved into like a sober high school type thing. Um, And then COVID hit like almost right afterwards. So I was moved into this school with very small amounts of kids and I was really doing well in my sobriety. And then all of a sudden I wasn't able to go to school anymore And we were doing everything online and, um, you know, school was online, AA meetings, NA meetings, everything was pretty much online. Um, So that made it extremely difficult to reach out to people. Um, And I noticed about a month into, you know, being on lockdown that um, my mental health was not doing as well. And I had more thoughts of relapsing and I did end up relapsing during lockdown. So that was a major setback for me because in order to um, come back from that, I had to do more treatment, but it was online again. So I was trying really, really hard to stay sober and improve my mental health and, you know, reach out to people through basically a computer screen. And that made things really, really difficult. So uh, just a follow-up note that Shelby did go on to a college uh, that has a sober program, and, and she's living in a sober dorm and doing well, we're told. But she did say she thinks that we as a culture underestimated how tough the isolation of the pandemic would be for uh, kids struggling with addiction. Um, any any reactions to that, Cedric? Uh, yes, I mean, we could see even with... Um with the opioid crisis we're dealing with right now that, you know, it's been an increase in, in overdose. Um, so, you know, um, chemical, de- chemical dependency health in the educational setting is, you know, it's some, I, I would say it's a work in progress. Um, what I've seen is a lot of so, uh, sober schools. Um, but, you know, coming out of a, of a pandemic and dealing with mental health and, and chemical health at the same time, it's, it's more of a, 
I think it's a specialty that um, a few providers can offer. Um, uh, Headway is one of those um, uh, providers who can provide like cool, um, uh, chemical health and mental health at the same time. Um, what's, but a, you, what's a sober school? I'm not even familiar. Sober with school is. Is, is is what it says. Is like they most of the uh, the focus is on chemical dependency and remaining sober. And it has you know you have the staff and and the resources in the building that help mm-hmm. kids to remain sober. Um, it's a great opportunity for many students to maintain sobriety. Um, especially if, you know, it's a lot of chemical use in, in their school building or whatever setting they're in, um, the sober school is a good option to get the support that you need, that, the intensive support you need outside of just treatment. And Benita, what do we know about uh, students turning to, we talked earlier about numbing the pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we know about what the pandemic did with um, addiction and relapse? I'm, I'm not sure if, I mean, I don't know any numbers. I do know it's increased in our high schools. Um, and if, we have to remember, too, kids are at home with their parents who are probably also, mm-hmm. uh, their use is increasing. It's a way to cope with, um, with pain. Um, and so if you're watching it at home, you were maybe already doing it before. Uh, it was a social thing with kids, and now you're by yourself. That's going to increase it, you do feel better in some way because you're not thinking about what's wrong, and so that's going to increase it. But they're seeing it in schools now. Um, I mean, not now. They, I guess they always have, but increasing use in the school itself. And Keila, anything you can add about uh, chemical dependency and yeah. today? Well, what I hear the most from that story is just thinking about how important it is for schools to have multi-systems of supports for kids because they're often the the first line of learning or the first place that families might look for resources or referrals or community um, information to get support, whether it's sobriety, substance use, mental health, basic needs, things like that. And since the pandemic and American Rescue Plan Act, there was dollars assigned to that and positions in a lot of districts have you know, tried to increase social work counseling or other support to help with these types of, you know, to cope with isolation, mental health, all those things like that. Um, But what happens is I think that a lot of schools don't have complete equations to support kids, and sometimes that creates a shortage for kids getting the help that they need. And the American Rescue Plan dollars are set to expire after the 2023-2024 school year, and so we're going to be facing a lot of potential helpful programs, you know, on a budgetary chopping block again if 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 we don't continue to have support for that for programs like you know that's been mentioned. Mm-hmm. I think that does also bring up the point that we expect schools to do so much, Mm -hmm. Um, maybe too much. Yes. You know. um, Well, that's what we're talking about is that like everyone can do something that what the community can do and what we can do within our own households. Right. 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 Because the teachers, I think, are tired. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Uh, Our time is running short, but I do want to make sure that we end with this. The pandemic was definitely impactful for our students, but it wasn't always in bad ways. During our story circle last week, several students voluntarily told us about the good things that came out of the pandemic for them. So right now you're about to hear from Kayla Marie Milkey, Anna Alvier, and Ryan Inksler. Take a listen. I think now college being away from home and like really truly getting a fresh start, I feel so much better now. And especially like 
I feel like the uncertain times or whatever really helped me understand who I am and that a lot of what I was doing was to please or appease to others and really like taking a step back and like actually learning to love myself, learning to care for myself as an individual rather than like in a weird checklist way. And I'm very happy for where I am and like proud of myself because like, we don't know what this is going to look like long-term. Like there's no way of telling, but I feel like we do all have that collective, basically trauma from the pandemic that I would hope helps us understand each other and like meet each other where we are. That was kind of a side of it that was positive for me because a lot of my family, I interacted with a lot more. I learned a lot more Spanish over the time period where we all had to um, stay at home and isolate. I got a lot more into like running and playing tennis with my parents because I couldn't see anybody else. So for me, like my inner family got a lot closer. I would say the return to uh, in-person learning and back in the classrooms um just really brought forth such an appreciation for for people and you know the teachers and the maintenance staff and everyone that makes school as a system work um, and just has made me a lot more grateful for what I have um, and there's a really interesting time when I was a junior last year we went back to in uh, distance learning for like two weeks cases were really high uh, there were some classes that were being taught by maintenance staff. We had run through all of our subs and cases were really high. Um, after we came back after the two weeks, everyone was just very thankful for all the staff that made school possible. So gratitude um, came out so much stronger after the pandemic. Hmm. I loved hearing all of those thoughts. Uh, we heard students talk about uh increased gratitude, uh, some family relationships, becoming closer to family members, appreciating them more, and also developing a better understanding of self. Uh, the first student talked about, I really came to understand who I am. I'd love to give each of you a, a final word. Um, what would you want parents and students who listen to this, uh, what would you want them to know? Some some words of encouragement or just you know how you've personally been affected and, and see things maybe slightly differently or better now? Uh, Anyone want to go first? <laughs> you look like students now. Okay. I'm going to pick. Uh, Keila, you can go first. <laughs> you know, when I was listening to those stories, the first thing that came to mind is resilience, right? Yeah. I think oftentimes as adults, we feel like we want to alleviate discomfort for our youth and our children, and we want to have the answers for them. And unfortunately, we don't have the answer. And I think sometimes when I meet with students, I say to them, you know, I wish I had that magic wand and I could go poof and I could make it all better. Mm -hmm. And I can't. But let's find out what is in your control and let's find out what we can do to, to give you skills to work on this. And I think that those stories just resonate with me with kids were, were building skills that are going to help them in the future. And because it's, it's messy mm -hmm. being human and we don't know what's going to happen in the future, right? And so the best we can do is just work to give them skills and support them and be consistent and be there and, you know, be there when they fall down and celebrate those successes when they come and, you know, continue to journey on through this messy life that we're all in. Mm -hmm. Cedric? I would say 
the first thought that came in my head, uh, mind was lean into your village. Um, a lot of parents feel like I'm the only resource that my kid has. Um, but, you know, just take a look around and see, is there other people around you that can support you, your family, um, and, and your youth? And then also self-care from as a parent. Parenting is tough these days, you know, given with social media and all the other things that are going on uh, in your young person's life. You want to make sure that you are, you know, you're taking care of yourself and you're doing the type of self-care you need to be able to support your youth. I would agree with the self-care. I think that's come up not only um, for me, but for therapists in general. You're holding this heavy load teachers, parents are, and the kids to to be able to practice the skills, deep breathing, taking a bath, taking a walk, all of those things, and those things are helpful. Kids have actually taught me that, what they've been doing to take care of themselves. Uh, our time is up, and I just want to thank all three of you for um, sharing your expertise, but also for um, sharing how much you care. Uh, I, I loved hearing that, and I appreciate all the advice uh, and what you've shared with our audience today, uh, our panelists today, Dr. Benita Amadi, clinical supervisor for the Wilder Foundation school-based mental health team, Cedric Weatherspoon, the president and clinical director of Empower Therapeutic Support Services in Minneapolis, and the 2022 Minnesota Counselor of the Year, Keila Coolers, who currently works as a counselor at St. Paul's Music Academy. I appreciate all of you. Thank you for your time. And to our listeners, um, thank you for joining in. Our next In Focus conversation will happen in April. It'll be here before you know it. And we hope to be able to do it out in the community instead of here at NPR. So stay tuned for more information on that. And for more about student mental health um, and the the mental health crisis we're seeing, uh, be sure to listen to my 9 a.m. live talk show on NPR because this is a conversation we will continue to have through the spring and the summer months. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk again tomorrow morning at night.